This is a rebroadcast of last week's Future of Education conversation that Will Mannon and I hosted with two legendary authors, Ryan Craig and Michael B. Horn. We talked about the future of job training and reskilling in the digital age, boot camps, income share agreements. Will and I host these weekly, so if you want to keep up with future sessions, just head over to futureofeducation.club. I hope you enjoy. Hey, everyone. We're very excited to be hosting the Future of Education Club. First time on Twitter spaces instead of Clubhouse. Uh, And essentially, uh, we bring on really interesting guests in the education space and dive into a variety of different topics. Uh, Topics we really want to dive into today is this kind of idea of job training and reskilling during the virtual era. And we have two guests who are really equipped to kind of talk about this. Um, uh, Michael B. Horn, uh, who is... uh, is a renowned author as well as hosts his own podcast, which I'm just such a big fan of, Future You. Uh, and he wrote Choosing College. Uh, and and we're so also honored to welcome Ryan Craig, who uh, wrote two two phenomenal books, Disrupting College and the New You. And he's currently uh, a partner at Achieve Partners, formerly University Ventures. Ryan, welcome. Great to have you on. Stage. Hey, can you hear me? This is Ryan. Yeah. Yes. Welcome, Ryan. And Will, I'll, I'll pass it off to you to... Uh, to kick it off. Excellent. Well, again, thank you guys both for being here. Um, thanks everybody for joining. We do this every Monday at 9 p.m. Eastern. This is our first time on Twitter Spaces, usually over on Clubhouse. Um, and this will be recorded as a podcast as well, if anybody's curious. But uh, to kick things off, uh, I'd like to start with the boot camp space and uh, talk about the current landscape of boot camps. I've um, read both of you all talking about uh, this and, and where boot camps stand. But a lot of what I was reading from you all was uh, pre-pandemic and and um, Michael, I know you laid out these different scenarios for the future of boot camps. Your best case scenario was mega disruption, where boot camps go beyond code academies and tech and expand into other industries, and they expand to serve students throughout a whole lifelong you know learning course and not just in their sort of early innings of their career. So I'd like to ask both of you all, post-pandemic, what is the current landscape of boot camps? Are you more bullish than ever? What are you seeing uh, given the last 12 months or so? I'll defer to Ryan first. You know, he's been covering this last mile space uh, basically from its inception. So, Ryan, Ryan, why don't you go first and I'll I'll provide color commentary to you play by play. Uh, Well, uh, first of all, so good. I can see who's on here and a lot of friends. Uh, Good to see. Good to see everyone. so yeah, look, I think the the obviously uh, the, the 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 obvious answer is online. <laughs> They're all online now, uh, and I know there were a lot of boot camps who sort of questioned whether or not uh, it could be done uh, online. The the level of sort of uh, intensive, immersive um, uh, training that occurs uh, and, and 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 collaborative. And I think the jury is still out. I mean, based from from what I hear and what I what I see in our own programs is uh, it's not the same. <laughs> it's not the same as uh, an in-person immersive uh, uh, educational experience. And that uh, while it's great from the provider standpoint to be able to launch cohorts uh, nationally or even globally without uh, regard to sort of w- where they are, uh, physically. Uh, I, I know a number of programs, they sort of can't wait uh, to get back uh, in person, uh, um, immersive. Um, 
you know, have, having said that, uh, look, I, I, I think that the, the, the industry is as healthy as it's ever been. Uh, there have been a, a number of providers that, uh, you know, seem to be, uh, you know, teetering and seem to have been strengthened uh, as a result of um, the last year. Uh, part of that is, I think, uh, the, uh, the counter-cyclical trend that we uh, always see in the event of a, a recession. Uh, you see students sort of uh, swarming back into uh, traditional post-secondary education. Uh, you, you didn't see that this year. Uh, you didn't see folks swarming back into community colleges, for example. Enrollment was down by double digits across the board in community colleges, but you did see uh, enrollment uh, increase uh, at, uh, at boot camps. So that is, uh, that's, 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 that's certainly positive. Mike, Michael, you want to. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I, I, I'd agree largely. Like I, I think from a growth perspective uh, the results were extremely clear where, whereas in traditionally you, you've seen in recessions that people go back to higher ed institutions, particularly community colleges, uh, that didn't happen, frankly, uh, this time around. And, and not only did it not happen in the numbers, because you could say there's a time shift element, right? In 08, 09, that, uh, the Great Recession, the real peak was 18 months after the recession in terms of enrollment in higher ed. But not only are students not coming back, they're uh, shrinking in higher ed institutions right now. And people's stated intent is that they don't want to go back to higher ed institutions as much as they want short form uh, programs. So people are voting both with their feet and, and, and in surveys and saying, we want these shorter, faster, uh, cheaper programs uh, that get us skills, uh, allow us to move up in the labor market. And so I would say there's a lot of energy, frankly, uh, around, you know, not just the, what we've traditionally thought of as the boot camp space, but any short form credential provider. Uh, there, there's a lot of energy around that. And, and the I guess the second part I, I would add, uh, Will, to your, you know, to your question of like, is a mega disruption happening? I mean, R Ryan sees this more than I do, I think, on a day to day basis. But my sense is that a lot of these short form programs, these faster, cheaper pathways uh, have absolutely started to expand beyond tech uh, into a range of other sectors, whether it's sales, healthcare, et cetera. Um, and I, I, I think as it becomes more and more a part of the cultural zeitgeist, if you will, or, or an understood pathway into jobs and people start to uh, port them into other fields and industries and things of that nature, It'll become its own lexicon. It'll become much more comfortable. It'll become something that makes sense to people and, and people will look to expand. And so I, I think the overall prognosis right now is, is bright for the, for the boot camp, et cetera, space. Uh, um, it, you know, it doesn't mean that I think a degree is worthless or that there aren't providers in high, traditional higher ed uh, among accredited institutions that are doing really important, great work. I think, I think there are, you know, Southern New Hampshire University, Western Governors University, uh, Arizona State University, they've grown significantly in the pandemic as well. They're innovating, but look at what they're doing. You know, Southern New Hampshire acquired Kenzie Academy uh, and they intend to figure out ways to stack these short form credentials into degrees to create more pathways uh, so that you can go follow, a, you know, to your question, they can not only service that last mile uh, pathway into that first job, if you will, but then ladder, continue to ladder someone up and become a lifelong learning hub. So I, I think that's where a lot of the energy 
uh, is going right now. I should should add, Kenzie was one of the ones that was teetering, and this was a um, what happened was effectively a forced sale after uh, there was a. It, my understanding is there was an investor who was going to keep the company afloat, backed out, and it essentially it sold for pennies on the dollar to the New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. With with this move to virtual, I think there's this really fascinating trend happening, which is the barrier to entry to start starting one of these institutions has never been lower. When you think about virtual training, the training that you're getting from university doesn't feel like that much different than you can get from learning from anybody else online. No, yeah, that's for really sure. That, that's absolutely the, 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 the biggest development of the last year is the unmasking of uh higher education um, and the fact that they were unable to sell a bundle for a year uh, and uh, they were selling online courses and charging a bundled price. Yeah, so sir. I mean, I, I, we were talking about it this a little bit before, Ryan, and, and it's really interesting. Like, what are the implications when anybody, it doesn't matter if you're a university professor or somebody who's, you know, this well-renowned uh you know, university researcher, it, just anybody can start their own online school with, you know, tools like Zoom and and uh, Slack and Google Calendar. I mean, like we have all these amazing software tools. And so now it's it's almost democratized who can teach. You don't have to be in the public school system and you don't have to be at a university. Theoretically, anybody could start a boot camp. Yeah, well, look, and I, I think, you know, for, for, for us, the key is, you know, the right sizing of the price point. I mean, you know, there are those who argue that if you're seeking to upskill in an area where there's a skills gap, uh, you shouldn't be paying. <laughs> there's a willing payor for that upskilling, and that's the ultimate employer who can't find uh, candidates with that skill set. So uh, if, uh, you know, the, the argument goes, if you're paying or if someone is seeking uh, for you to pay for that upskilling, they've either got the wrong business model or at least an unimaginative business model because, there's a very willing payor uh, on the other side, but you know, even if you don't believe that, um, then the question is, well, what, how much financial risk and how much debt should you be taking on uh, in return for this uh, upskilling? Uh, and I'm hopeful that uh, one positive event of the tragic last year uh, is that we will begin to see a right sizing of the pricing uh, here. We've only you know, been a handful of institutions that provided a discount uh, over the last year, the, the traditional colleges and universities, I think 11 in total provided, you know, at least a double digit discount over the, you know, list tuition, uh, price. Uh, but, uh, you know, we, <laughs> and then, and then there've been a number that have sort of reset, uh, tuition, um, to, you know, closer to what they were discounting. So if you have, if you're charging $40,000, but your net tuition is, you know, 18,000 because you're discounting, you know, 58%, um, then uh, you know it's, it's it, maybe you should reset your tuition to eighteen thousand or twenty thousand, and discount or offer scholarships from there. And and you know what does that do to you know increase the top of the funnel of students who would consider your your program or institution? So you know I I, I um I'm I'm I'm, I'm somewhat optimistic that that we, that that will be a positive effect of the last year. Yeah, so I, I largely agree with you, Ryan, on on, on that, and I think uh, we're we're seeing the wisdom uh, of, of you know pricing finally becoming sort of the next wave of competition in all this. But but I do think that there's two other factors that make it still a little more complicated than just anyone standing up their own uh, online course, if you will, that's going to attract students and be able to price it. And and one of them remains the barrier that it's 
been for a long time, which is acquisition cost. Uh, and so there's got to be a compelling value proposition that, that you know, or, or, or distribution channel that makes you stand out and be able to attract students. Um, and, and then the second one is I, I do think, you know, uh, students have become much more discerning of the quality of online in the last year, thanks to the pandemic in many ways, that, that we see what really bad online teaching looks like and that there is a difference uh, from a course that has instructional designers supporting it uh, and, and putting, uh, you know, at least a fraction of what we know from the learning sciences into play versus, you know, a professor doing a really bad Zoom uh, online facsimile or just recording a lecture, uh, you know, through, the, through their uh, camera uh, on their computer. And, and so I, I, I do think that these are other pieces of the, uh, of the puzzle that make the barriers to entry counterintuitively could raise them in certain ways, um, it, it, at least in some parts of this market that's, that, that's developing right now. One question I have is just to distinguish when we say boot camps, I feel like there's different flavors of boot camps we can break down. The way I see it, I, I'm seeing two categories. I'd love to hear y'all's uh, opinions on if I'm getting this right or not, but there's the one people traditionally think of, you know, coding boot camps, right? So obviously you have General Assembly uh, or Flatiron and all these coding boot camps that have been around for a while are pretty well established on the value they provide. They're teaching uh, sort of a, a skill that can be, then be taken to a whole different number of employers. The second one, uh, something Ryan in particular, I've heard you talk about, which are sort of these explicitly last mile training programs. You'd mentioned one called Reverture, but basically there's all these employers who need employees who can use very technical SaaS systems like an insurance claim system or Salesforce, and there are these intermediary programs that go to the companies, find out the exact skills they need, and then they uh, provide a way for people to learn those skills. And so what I guess the two categories I'm seeing is one for more broad-based skills like learning, coding, and then see where that takes you versus narrower sort of business tool-specific uh, boot camps. There's probably more categories that I'm seeing that distinction. Am I getting that right, or would you guys categorize it differently? Yeah, I think that's I, I think that's fair. I mean, I, look, I I I I I refer to it as the difference in any sort of bootcamp version 1.0 and and 2.0, uh, and, and you know, in our view, uh, some of those 1.0 skills uh, we're not seeing the same uh, gap, uh, meaning that you know you don't have uh, you know thousands of employers seeking for someone who's you know just learned JavaScript. Right. Um, so that, that's the, that, that's the candidate I want. Someone who's like spent three months and just, you know, has just learned Java. Um, increasingly what we're seeing is employers with very specific combinations of tech uh, uh, platforms or stacks and business skills or experience. Um, and that's what they're looking for. And that, you know, that may, kind of makes it harder uh, to build, you know, a boot camp with, you know, thousands of students pursuing that same, uh, you know, track uh, or or curriculum, uh, and does, you know, open itself to, and you know, at Reviture, when we sold that company, they had eighty different training tracks, most of which were sort of custom developed for clients, and you know, each of those was maybe producing, you know, twenty or thirty a year, but uh, you know, that was a very, you know, fast growing, profitable uh, business, um, so. Uh, I do think that we're going to see more growth in that 2.0 sort of skill specific and not just, you know, not, not just tech skill specific, but business uh, uh, industry experience. We're, we, we are likely to acquire a Salesforce uh, focused platform. Uh, and that's a great example of a space where 
you know, training someone on Salesforce for, um, you know, the healthcare sector, working at a hospital is uh, different from training someone on Salesforce to be a, you know, a Salesforce admin, you know, working in financial services. And, and, and they need to have that background in order to be productive uh, in the role on day one. And so that's highly integrated, the, the tech training and the sort of business industry knowledge. I, just to amplify that last point, um, and, and t totally agree with the categorization, so I, I won't add anything there, but on, on that last point that Ryan just raised, I, I think this is a really important one, which is that uh, a lot of people, when they look at the survey level of, say, a Georgetown Center for Education Workforce study that says, like, what, what's the most important thing that employers are looking for? Oh, critical thinking, writing, communications, stuff I like love that. that. I've, those are general. I love those surveys. Okay, yeah, well, go ahead. right. So these are general skills, right? That uh, like port in any different industry and therefore bubble up on a survey as being really important. But how critical thinking manifests itself in a particular sector, sector by sector, is vastly different. So having the context, the knowledge, actually having practiced the skills in the domain itself is incredibly important. So when, when you just gave that example, Ryan, of like how Salesforce would, would work in a healthcare environment versus another, I think it's exactly right, which is like marry, marrying the, the industry and business uh, uh, skill set and, and context and, 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 and so forth with the technical training, that's going to be the magic sauce in a lot of this, that, that it's not going to be just sort of doing something in isolation and thinking that it's naturally going to transfer, you know, far transfer uh, learning scientists speak about, uh, unless you actually are, are building an engine like say Minerva, where you're actually intentionally training a skill across multiple different uh, sectors as part of the learning curriculum, you're not going to get that far transfer that people think that you are. And so I, 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 I I, I think a lot of the skill training right now, you, you have to see it as interdependent often with the, um, with the sector in which the muscle is being built, if you will. What Sorry, you, yeah, say, the other, you know, those, those surveys, uh, they're, uh, you're basically asking, they, they ask the question, what skills do you want to see? But that, that's a question that, that, that those employers are sort of answering mid funnel or, or bottom of the hiring funnel. Uh, they're assuming that, they're, that, that the candidates, and, and the, because the candidates, of course, that you're seeing mid-funnel or bottom of funnel are candidates who already passed all those technical skill screens, right? Because that's what the applicant tracking system is screening out. So like, yes, of course you want someone with, with critical thinking skills. Um, you want someone with communication skills, but you're, the only people you're seeing are people uh, who already have all the specific tech skills and tech stacks that you're specifying in your job description. So all those surveys are omitting those technical skills because those are screened out at the top of the hiring funnel. Yeah, so totally agree with that. And 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 again, on top of that, it's it's averaging across employers from a range of industries. So it's not going to pick up any one technical skill, right? That's going to rise to the top somehow magically. It's uh, and so it's the the design itself is flawed if we're actually trying to get something actionable from them. In my mind. So re really interesting to hear how these programs can help close that skills gap by giving people these very specific skills that businesses really need that a, a, a college graduate uh, without this specific training might not have. So that helps close the skills gap. But the way I see it, there's also this norms gap where uh, just convincing people to do these programs 
you know, if, even if they can get them a job, there's this norms gap of if somebody's leaving college or even hasn't gone to college and is doing this program, uh, when their parents are at the Christmas cocktail party, it's not a normal thing to say. I mean, that'll change over time, I, I suppose. But what do you all think of that? You know, having when somebody actually makes a decision to join one of these programs, they're pretty new. It's not common to understand, oh, I'm taking this program for nine weeks to learn how to use Epic Healthcare or Salesforce or something. How do you think about closing that norms gap? Is that on the, the onus is on the, the last mile training programs to, to sort of make them more normalized? Will it just happen over time? How, how do you guys see that? Well, the good news is that there were no Christmas cocktail parties last year. So that solves that. <laughs> no, True. just kidding. Um, the, the, um, look, I, I, I think that the answer uh, comes from just simply better value propositions. I mean, as you, as you know, the models that we're focused on at Achieve are not tuition-based models or not models where students are being asked to take that financial risk. We're, we're in that category of, you know, <laughs> yeah, if, if, it, if it truly is a skill, uh, skill gap, there's, there's a willing payor and that's the end employer. So we are focused on building apprenticeship programs, uh, whether registered or, or not, but in, 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 in form substantively, uh, like a traditional apprenticeship, you're paid, you're hired on day one, you're being paid, you're guaranteed a job, it's a clear pathway. Um, and that, you know, in, in our view, um, that's just a better value proposition, right, for the student. So the more of those we build, uh, and we, we have no trouble filling these, when, whenever we launch a cohort, whether it's an Epic or cybersecurity or Salesforce or software dev or data, uh, we have 100 applicants for every seat um, in these cohorts. So we can be very selective. We just need to build more of them. And that's going to be obviously entirely client driven, right? We need to get clients to um, essentially put in orders uh, for talent uh, from these sort of new intermediaries. Um, and you know, as we as we add, you know, thousands and thousands of seats uh, in these uh, in, in these cohorts, it will become more normal, uh, and uh, it will it will it will become uh, sort of more more attractive. I mean, I I, I just I think, and, and you're going to see more attention paid to apprenticeship over the next year. That's going to be uh, next couple of years. Um, the Biden administration is very focused on, and it, it is something that um, you know in Washington and in in state capitals. Um, has appeal across the political spectrum. Nobody is against the idea of building more apprenticeship-like pathways to uh, careers in, in tech. Everyone's in favor of that. So, you know, my, my, my son opted for, you know, an apprenticeship uh, in healthcare IT. You know, that sounds, you know, I think better than I, <laughs> you know, I, I spent $20,000 to do this coding bootcamp. I largely agree with that. I, I just make three points. One, uh, brands and, and uh, get established from strong value propositions. And I think a lot of times in marketing, we act as though like marketers create brands, but that's not at all true. They, they, they provide all the language and fluff around it, but ultimately they fall back on real value propositions. And so if you see a great value proposition, over time, the brand will come and, and, and word of mouth and referrals and all the rest of, of good impacts from that, that accrues to good brands will, will start to come in. The, the second thing I, I, I'd say is um, I actually think some of this has already started to change. Um, I, I am shocked by the number of individuals that I talk to, not in education, that are just parents of folks in, you know, I, I'm in Lexington, Massachusetts, which is uh, 
a uh, by traditional metrics, one of the best school districts in the country. Um, uh, it just it happens to be a lot of Harvard and MIT professors who, whose kids go here, but uh, they a ton of them are already having these sorts of conversations and looking for alternative pathways or programs and, and trying to think, is college worth it? And, and making decisions that I, I would not have necessarily expected a couple of years ago. Um, so I, I think some of this is already in the water and, and, and changing. Uh, and then I guess the third point I would say is this, which is, I also think it's true that as people opt for shorter form programs, it at least in the immediate future, making sure that those programs do have avenues to stack into degrees uh, is a prudent choice. And so that we're not, it, you know, I, I kind of view this as the hybrid stage of the disruption, uh, but where we're not forcing people to pick one or the other, but the answer is both. And, and that as you're building skills, you're able to stack them over time into things that are, are, are greater and greater than the sum of their parts, even potentially, uh, because the data still is that a degree will have uh, longer value employers wrongly in, in many cases, but still are clinging to degrees as something that sorts. And so I, I think it's something that you can split the difference on, uh, at least in the short term. And it's something that I'd encourage people to, 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 to be looking for. W one other point on this, which is I also think that there is some of these boot camps, and, and this may be more the 1.0 version, but they have been exceedingly narrow um, in the skills that they do teach. And so I think there's the potential to uh, use degree programs to build a, a, a deeper liberal arts skill base uh, that, 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 that can be more valuable to, to building lifelong learners that will continue to upskill over their lives. And the way I think Lambda School has done this is really brilliant. It's this idea of how do you de-risk it, right? So, hey, like if you're considering going back to grad school or you're thinking about maybe enrolling in one of these boot camps, what Lambda School has done is they've used the income share agreement to completely de-risk the investment. So you don't know what you're getting with Lambda School, right? When you go to grad school, you know you're going to get this degree. But Lambda School, what they've said is like, hey, like we are going to make it so that you don't pay a cent for this education and until you land a job in the industry that we trained you in. Unless you've done that, you don't owe us a cent. And the way they've been able to do this is kind of short circuit their way to this kind of brand loyalty over time. Because now what they've been able to prove out is over the last you know three, four years that, hey, we can spit out some of the top software engineers, not in four years, but in nine months. And we're going to teach them really relevant industry skills that most college professors are, these are platforms that they've never even encountered in their time if they've even spent time in industry. And so Lambda School de-risks it. Students, some small subset of you students, these are kind of the innovators, uh, they take you know, they take the risk. And over time, Lambda School is able to build a reputation with industry. I mean, I, me, I run a software company where we help power a lot of these boot camps. And one of my earliest software engineer hires was a Lambda School grad. And she outperformed any other software engineer I've ever hired. And simply for the curriculum she was taught was just so relevant to current industry needs. So I think that's one of the things they've done. The other things they did was specifically around the job placement. This is the other part of it. Obviously, you have to convince the student to, to take the investment, but you also have to assuage the employer that you've actually trained somebody who is going to perform. And the way they did this was they've introduced something called the fellows program, which is when you want to hire a software engineer from Lambda school, 
you do not have to pay. They will pay for their first month to come in, do a project. And at the end of it, it's no risk to you. You can choose to hire them and then you'll pay them a salary or they just go back into that pool and they do another one of these internships and it completely de-risks it from both ends. And then over time, Lambda School essentially builds its brand, it builds its reputation, and now it doesn't need to lean on the ISA as much, though that is one of the things that it's just, it's able to edge out these traditional universities. That's great. I mean, that's, that's, that, 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 that's uh, approximating uh, the kinds of apprenticeships that we're building. Obviously, the ISA, we're, we, we, we're an investor in Vimo, so we know ISAs very well. Um, and ISAs are great. They, they do de-risk it from a financial standpoint. What they don't do is they don't guarantee you a job. <laughs> so they, they incre increase your confidence that you will get a job because, uh, of course, the, the, the program, the, the boot camp is not going to get paid unless, unless, unless you succeed. Uh, but that yeah, the incentives are aligned. Yeah, incentives are aligned, but it doesn't guarantee it. Um, what 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 sounds like Lambda is doing uh, with this program is, uh, and presumably they they have a you know invested in a network of uh, effectively salespeople to try to get um, uh, clients uh, on board, and that is effectively a staffing function uh, that we pioneered with uh, with Reviture, uh, and it's it, it's one that. Makes sense. It's 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 the reason that we're we're so focused on uh, buying businesses that already have those sales forces. It's 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 hard it's hard to build, quite frankly. I mean, we we bought uh, a company called Optimum Healthcare IT, which has uh, master services agreements with two hundred hospital systems around the country. That would be hard for Lambda or the Lambda equivalent in healthcare IT to try to build from the ground up. It's possible, but it's just, it's. Ryan, do you think do you think universities should be scared of ISAs? I think over time, you know, as more and more of these kind of ISA programs emerge, students might be thinking like, hey, like, you know, Lambda School is not, you know, charging me until I land a job. Like, like, aren't you going to do the same? And and for universities, this is terrifying because they have to they have to prove that they're worth, you know, this fifty thousand dollars per year investment or not. And and they've never really been kind of outcome focused before. Because why would you, if you can get the money up front, get the money up front? Yeah, look, it's so, so I mean, the, the, the higher ed sector is so big and this, this sector that we're talking about is just so small. It's a rounding error. And the way universities are thinking about ISAs now is uh, using it as a, as a yield management tool, right? They're, they're, <laughs> they're thinking about, okay, if we offer uh, in our financial aid package, uh, instead of a, a loan, we offer an ISA instead for this amount, um, can we increase our yield by 3%? And that translates into real revenue. So that's how they're thinking, uh, thinking about ISAs right now. They are not worried about uh, students going out the door. And, 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 I, and I think uh, they, they, you know, they're, they're not going to be until the number of seats uh, in you know, programs like Lambda, where you're not only reducing the financial risk, but you're increasing uh, you're, you're, you're approximating an employment guarantee or uh, our, our apprenticeship uh, models, you know, number in the hundreds of thousands, but we're a few years away from that. I had a question on upskilling uh, beyond, I, I feel like we've been focused a lot on early career, getting people who have just left college or maybe after the first job into a new job. But uh, last week we were having a very interesting conversation and this idea of mid-career reskilling came up. Uh, used my old neighbor here in LA, a lady named Deb. She was in her 50s. She was doing event planning, had a great career for a big law firm. And you can imagine what happened last March. It all went away. 
Uh, and she ended up, she was walking dogs. Like she did not have something to, to fall back on. And in my mind, she's sort of an archetype for somebody who would be sort of primed for a mid-career uh, reskilling, upskilling. And, you know, we were talking to somebody last week who ran a marketing upskilling and she was saying, well, quite frankly, most of our successful case stories are from uh, people in their 20s, people out of college. We take any age, but we found that people who are on the younger end do best. So I'm wondering, how do you guys think about this mid-career upskilling? We were kind of pondering last week, is there this new category of institutions that can emerge to serve this, uh, this demographic? Is there not enough opportunity there? Uh, how are they being served currently? What are your thoughts on that? I mean, we, we just bought a company um, called Freedom Learning Group, which, believe it or not, is addressing the skills gap in instructional designers for online courseware. <laughs> it was not, it was, that was not a, a skill gap sector we were focused on uh, 18 months ago, but with COVID and the shift to remote learning, it rose up the ranks really quickly. Um, and they're sourcing their instructional designers, not from new and recent college grads. Uh, they're sourcing their instructional designers from the military and specifically veterans and military spouses uh, who have deep STEM and tech subject matter expertise and their last mile training them to become instructional designers, which, and, and the reason for that is, 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 is pretty cool, which is that your typical instructional designer, and there are probably people listening who've hired a, an instructional designer or two, most of them have master's or doctoral degrees in instructional design and have subject matter expertise in nothing <laughs> in particular, really. I mean, not deep subject matter expertise and probably not in STEM or tech. And with the demand for STEM or tech courseware has uh, increased uh, as it has uh, over the past few years, uh, you really actually need to understand the subject matter in order to be an effective instructional designer. So they reversed it by starting with the subject matter experts and uh, then last mile training. Uh, in instructional design, and uh, it's working great. They, I think, last quarter uh, hired in 250 plus uh, veterans and military spouses uh, into their um, in, into their program, and have, have last mile trained them and are staffing them out on on projects for instructional design. So the answer is it's happening. Uh, it may not be happening in coding, um, but it's happening. Yeah, and just two two thoughts on that. One, I. I also think we uh, this image that we often have of the coal miner turned coder uh, we know is probably not the most likely bridge uh, for for a lot of these individuals. So Ryan's story, I think, around other uh, upskilling fields, if you will, uh, resonates in that way. That not everything is going to go through sort of the the traditional boot camp pathway, if you will, uh, for for any individual writ large, uh, but but also. Uh, mid-career uh, individuals, if you will. The, the, the second thing I'd say is, you know, I, I think that in, in some ways, uh, I, I spend most of my time these days with guild education. That's what we're doing, that we're working with large employers that are moving their workforces through upskilling uh, by, by providing a range of educational options for, for these individuals uh, to, to uh, impre improve their managerial prowess, to improve their technical skills, in the case of Walmart, to train healthcare professionals that will staff their healthcare super centers across the country. Uh, and so uh, actually large employers uh, are, already see this need. Uh, and, and you know, the counterintuitive thing, again, about this recession, and there were, there were plenty, was that uh, in our case, our employers actually spent more in our numbers of students that we were uh, serving education and training opportunities to 
uh, went up by over 25%. Uh, and so uh, I, I think it speaks to the fact that there's different segments of that upskilling market. Once you're talking about uh, in, in employees who are already in their uh, second, third, fourth jobs. Um, and one part of this is large employers who are going to invest uh, in, into that space. And, you know, these are tens of thousands of, of employees in many cases. Uh, we have roughly 3 million or so uh, who, who are, are, are potential employees to upskill uh, in the employer partners that we serve. Uh, and that's still just a fraction of the market. So one of the, I guess, terminology that we're using, and I think it might make sense here to stop and be a little bit more explicit about it, is we talk about upskilling and reskilling. Michael, maybe you could tell us about how you see the difference. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, and I, I, I'm laughing just because I put out a newsletter around this topic of, of, uh, about a month or so ago, and a couple people wrote in and said, I hate this term upskilling. And, and I think the reason they hate it is because it implies lower skill to higher skill, whereas it might just be different skills. Um, but, but the way I think about it is it's not a dramatic retooling. It's something that you're making constant progression uh, in your career and, and all of us do it. We're constantly upskilling by learning new things. Some of those uh, skills are through formal programs in which we're investing. A lot of it is through informal experience where you're viewing certain things uh, online, you're reading topics, you're getting to apply them in projects and build skills with teammates around you and so forth. Constant upskilling of that way. Reskilling, I think of as that fundamental retooling where you're going to actually move into an adjacent or, or completely different uh, career pathway in some cases. And a lot of what you have learned isn't relevant uh, to, to, to jobs. And we're seeing this become incredibly important, right? Because uh, whole job uh, sectors are being wiped out with technology and automation. Certainly COVID uh, accelerated that for a variety of reasons. And, and so reskilling whole sect, uh, sectors of the workforce uh, has become incredibly important. Yeah, that's a really good point. And, and one of the trends that I think all these emerging rapid reskilling programs kind of hint at uh, is this idea that hopefully that I, I hope that we really move towards is continuous learning, right? So it's it's so interesting that we've had this model where we've been expected to have this kind of four-year degree at the start of our, our career. And we kind of expect that this is enough education to get you through the entirety of your career. Of course, there's grad school, which is you tack on another two years, but this still happens pretty early in your career. And then after that, we expect that there's never going to be retraining, re-education, the model where I think like now with the internet, industries are evolving so fast and, and it's just constantly evolving. And, and like you said, Michael, some of these industries just get wiped out overnight. And so I would love to see whether it's formal or informal for us to move toward this kind of continuous learning model where the norm isn't to necessarily get a four year degree, but rather take that you know, $100,000 investment and spread it out throughout the entirety of your career where you're maybe investing $1,000 every year to pick up skills that are relevant to your career today. Um, what do you guys think about this kind of model? Am I crazy? Well, yeah, I no, I, you're, I, you're, I you're talking about, it's funny, in higher education, uh, if you were talking to a, a group of higher education leaders, they would say, sure, yeah, we've been talking about this for decades. It's called lifelong learning. The problem is that their definition of lifelong learning starts with $100,000 in a bachelor's degree. <laughs> so, and then you'll come back and buy more after that. So, um, you know, what, what um, 
what we've, we've been saying for a couple of years now is you're wrong about that. Lifelong learning actually starts with, for many people, it makes sense to start with a faster and cheaper pathway to a good first job. And then look around and ascertain uh, what secondary or tertiary pathway you're going to pursue in order to gain those additional skills. And there's no question. I mean, you know, there's uh, uh, whether through Freedom Learning Group or Optimum or Reviture, um, you're not you're not getting all the skills you need uh, for your career at that point. You're not getting core cognitive problem solving communication skills. You're getting very specific technical and business skills that will allow you to be productive in your first job. Um, so you will need secondary and tertiary pathways to um, develop those skills that are ostensibly developed today over the course of a bachelor's degree program. For, for many students, they're not, but they're supposed to be being uh, developed. The problem is that those secondary and tertiary pathways don't exist right now. So, you know, if, if you were to, uh, you know, uh, right out of high school, do one of these apprenticeship uh, programs or do Lambda school, you know, what is your next pathway, you know, short of, um, you know, leveraging Lambda, uh, you know, towards it, like, you know, there will be universities that will recognize Lambda for 30 credits, right? That, that, that will have, I'm not worried about that. There are lots of universities will recognize virtually anything for 30 credits if they can get you in the door as a paying student. <clears throat> so, uh, that will happen, but um, you know, uh, reducing it from four years to three years is is not sort of the, the the bang for the buck. I think we're looking for. I think we're looking for, you know, um, after that first pathway, a second pathway that might be of comparable length uh, and comparable financial risk to get you another set of discrete skills that you need for the next step in your career. Um, they don't exist, right? They're basically. Uh, you know, what we're looking for is some kind of sort of unbundled master's program that's probably industry specific and maybe even role specific. Um, and so, you know, where, where are those going to come from? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I've been, I said in my book, I, I hope that's, you know, colleges and universities step up and, and do that. And it's why I'm sort of ba I'm bearish on uh, bachelor's degrees, but fairly bullish on master's degrees or some unbundled version thereof, uh, because uh, I think there will be millions of uh, mid-career people, but also uh, sort of new, new, newish career entrants who are going to need those secondary and tertiary pathways. Yeah, and I guess I have a slightly different perspective on in terms of the bearish bullish on the degree piece, just because I see the numbers of students and you know coming through the guild pipeline that that not only need bachelor's degrees but also often need high school diplomas, uh, frankly, um, to 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 get both basic skills and credentials uh, to get acceptance. Uh, for those next steps. And so we're, we're seeing those ladders be built and, and, and in many cases building those ladders with our academic partners uh, right now. But, but the second thing I guess I'd say, which, which I think echoes what Ryan says, is, is saying is, you know, the mantra used to be go to school to get a job. And increasingly, I think it's going to be get into that first job as quick as you can, as you quick as you can, so you can keep going to school and sort of and, and, and build those uh, pathways up. And, and I think that'll be the real uh, cultural shift, if you will, which is that uh, we stop thinking of that as a negative outcome somehow and realize this is about constructing a pathway. There's another benefit also when you, when you make this shift, which is um, I, I was interviewing Tom Dawson, who's the interim uh, president at Strata Education Network uh, just recently. Um, and he said, you know, there's a lot of conversation about last mile pathways and so forth, but there's also a first mile problem of like, 
individuals don't even know what the heck they want to do when they leave high school. Um, and I think that's absolutely right. It's what I found in choosing college, which is that there's just millions of learners who go into college or any number of pathways that sort of have a fixed set of, you know, a fixed sequence of things that they're going to do. And it takes two plus years at least for them to go through that fixed sequence. And they come out the other side and it's something that has no bearing at all to what they want to do, to what their skill set is, to anything that makes them happy or, or and, and tends to be a pretty negative outcome on the other end of it. And we just need a lot faster and more immersive, shorter sprints to get people reps in a variety of fields so that they can learn what the fields are even about. Is this something that jives with me? Is this something I want to invest more time in? Uh, and, and you can imagine that these pathways, if you will, will have a, a range of branches. Uh, the, the key to making it work is getting the cost down and getting the, the cycle time down so that you can have reps at this that continue to build on, on, on themselves. And, and, and look, I, 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 I'm clear right now in the short and midterm that I think stackability is going to be critically important as part of this, which involves traditional higher ed. But I will say in the long run, I think that a lot of these uh, last mile providers, you know, uh, 2.0, if you will, to, to Ryan's point, I think they're going to have to build their way into this as, they're, as what they are offering gains more and more credibility in the marketplace. I think for them to go up market, they're going to have to start to build uh, more robust programs and start to get some of these deeper skills that, that we're talking about that, that resemble what you would get in a liberal arts education and start to stack these and, and match these and uh, to get mash these together in different ways. I think that's going to be a, an important part for some of these providers of their way to get better and, and, and to be able to serve, be able to scale and serve more individuals. Yeah, and Michael, I think the institution that does one of the better jobs in making sure that students end up in the right place is actually the University of Waterloo. And, and I'm saying that because they have a very interesting requirement for their engineering school, which is in order to graduate, you need to have completed six co-ops, which, you know, I think people really undervalue uh, the just the value of going through an internship or co-op, how powerful that is to have three to six months to just test out and try out a career path with very little consequences. Because at the end of it, you pick up new skills and you get a very clear idea of whether or not this is something you want to do for the rest of your career. And if not, guess what? For your next co-op, you can just try something else. And one of the things as me, I, I actually interned at Facebook twice and consistently uh, more than any other student population, it was University of Waterloo interns, and they would continually outperform all the other interns. And even when they came full time uh, as software engineers at Facebook, they were just the top performers because they just came in with the most industry experience. And so it is really interesting. Like, I think Waterloo does a really good job of helping people get these reps early on in your career. I think after you graduate, it's much harder to to have that freedom to kind of explore. And I think largely that's actually par partly due to student debt. And because you have this large financial burden, you can't just stop what you're doing and try out software engineering for a couple of months or or jump over and try, hey, maybe I'll be a trader. It's, it's so much harder. I, I couldn't agree more. I, I think one of the insights of what Ryan has put together, right, is that essentially, Ryan, you're building career services offices that strap on an education program uh, on, on, on the front end, right? And, and so that, that, that's a piece of this. The I'm second piece is what you just said. I'm never going to sell my portfolio companies by calling them career services offices. But 
<laughs> you're reinventing it. How about that? But uh, but the, but 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 the second piece, I think, is what you just said, which is, and I was giving a talk actually to this learning experience uh, consortium, um, which is, you know, made up of institutions uh, like the University of Illinois or Northeastern or, or, or Waterloo is obviously everyone's favorite example uh, that make experiential learning a a, a significant more uh, of, of the curriculum. But my big insight was exactly what you just said, which is that there's a whole bunch of students. We, we would call them students who are running away from uh, their current circumstance the, and they're, and they're enrolling in school just to, just to escape um, or they're doing what's expected of them. And they have no freaking clue uh, what they really want out of the education experience. And for them to be successful, I, I, I increasingly um, have come to the view that you've got to front load it with the experiential learning, with the uh, placement into actual job-based uh, environment in, in, in real-world projects, using uh, companies like Ripen or, or, or Parker Dewey to actually put the projects and the real-world experiences on the front end of those experiences um, so, so that you can build a sense of like, who am I and what do I want to do and how do I want to contribute to the world? Okay, now I'll go get the education that allows me to do that. And, and I don't think we've, we've done nearly enough of that uh, on the front end. And look, there are some students for whom they have a clear sense that, you know, in our parlance, they're, they're looking to step it up in their lives and they have deep clarity uh, around what's next and, and, and what the options are. And, and for them, you know, they can just jump on the education conveyor belt, get exactly what they want as uh, efficiently as possible and get into that next job. But, but that is not serving a huge swath of, of the population well. And uh, one of the, you know, very interesting to hear all this uh, and, I believe that these last mile 2.0 programs will continue to expand, kind of continue to offer more and more of what a traditional school offers, but with these added benefits of helping you get, you know, uh, more oriented around employment. But, you know, if college right now is a bundle of education, network and social, that sort of social element of college, how do you see that fitting into this new world as more students are opting into this more practical model? Is it that the new institutions will start to develop their own sort of social, you know, sports, clubs type of uh, infrastructure, or is it that students will just start to sacrifice those things, those things will sort of fade away in a sense, um, because it's more practical to go to this uh, quicker education experience and get a job more quickly? You know, how, how do you guys see that playing out? Well, you know, I'll tell you, at Ravager, uh, their biggest program is, uh, or, or was, uh, West Virginia University, where they would rent dorms. Um, and when you walk around there, uh, you wouldn't know that it's not a college program. Uh, I mean, they're, they're working hard, <laughs> but, um, and I, I don't know whether they're keg parties, but, uh, there, there, there is a social element uh, to it. And I think you'd find that at really any, uh, immersive in-person bootcamp. Of course, over the last year, there's been no social anything. Um, but I think that just levels the playing field, uh, for these kinds of, uh, these kinds of programs. So, uh, I, 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 I see that as less of an issue, um, than, uh, than it was. Yeah, I, I largely agree. I mean, I see Ray Patra, um, on, 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 uh, among the listeners right now, who's building this notion of learning gymnasiums to create uh, social experience and cohort, uh, like environments for, for, for online programs, for example. But, 
uh, I think the point is that we're going to innovate and create ways for, for social activity to occur. I don't think it'll be you know, sports teams per se, although I look forward to the Revature Flyers uh, pl playing <laughs> hockey or something like that. Man, they, they are, uh, yeah. they're, gonna they're not going to win a game, the Revature Flyers. <laughs> <laughs> but the uh but but i think you know broadly speaking uh it, it's important to step back and realize most americans do not have what we think of as the traditional college experience right four years on a residential campus straight out of high school uh with sports teams and and and, and living in the dorms and, and on and on and so i think it's important to like uh, segment, if you will, this conversation a, a, a little bit. But I, the second thing I would say is it's clearly the case that who you know is incredibly important and building up social capital is incredibly important to career mobility, economic mobility and the like. And you can do that in a variety of ways. And it doesn't have like the, the activities don't have to mirror one to one the social activities that occur in a traditional college. I think the more important thing is that there are social activities. And I would argue that it's even better if that socialization occurs in the context of the actual projects and learning uh, you're doing as part of the academic program. I think that's even more valuable, frankly. Uh, and, and I'd argue even, you know, in, in college, you, you know, Ryan uh, worked on the, on the, on the rumpus tabloid new, newspaper at Yale. Uh, you know, that there was, be, be, besides the topics that they were writing about, the uh, work that they were doing was quite real world in many cases and, you know, built deep lasting friendships, I suspect, out of that. I certainly did at the Yale Daily News that he, uh, that he made fun I of. I think constantly. I made more enemies so, than friends, but. Uh... <laughs> but, you know, but either way, it served you well because everyone knew you. <laughs> I guess that's right. <laughs> I guess that's right. I would agree. Yeah, I think that um, uh, socialization uh, with context uh, results in uh, more rapid social development than, you know, keg parties. Um, so that's what we're looking for. We're looking for faster and cheaper pathways to socioeconomic mobility. And by the way, they're going to eliminate a lot of the downsides of the social experience in, in schools. I mean, you know, it, it just in terms of the abuse that occurs in a lot of these environments and the negative ramifications that, frankly, you, I, I think used to get swept under the rug all too often. I, I, we need to be moving past that and creating environments that go beyond it. And I, I think the coupling of, of sports is as much as I uh in, enjoy them, but I think the coupling of sports with uh, academic programs in such a tight way has has been just a uh, is going down a disastrous path. And so I think the decoupling of that to look more like the rest of the world uh, would would be a positive for the U.S. Yeah, as ab as abuse in the word in the workplace uh, abates, uh, there's less need for fraternities to prepare you for that abuse. Yeah, I, I mean, community is is the most powerful thing that we get out of college. And one of the things that we're seeing right now is the emergence or bringing that community after you graduate. How do you bring that into your life? And, and traditionally when you want it, you know, we talk about lifelong learning. Uh, I really kind of see it as into two categories. You have kind of career development where people are specifically going out, they're getting training specifically with career outcomes in mind. And then when I think lifelong learning, I think of it as people learning for the sake of learning. And it's more around, hobbyist skills. 
And right now, the most recent trend, and I don't know how much you guys have kept up with this, is this idea of cohort-based courses. And and the reason yep. that they've gained so much popularity is this idea of like they bring this kind of social learning outside of college. So no matter what it is, these kind of course you want to take online, you can do it, but you can do it with a community of peers who are at the same stage as you. And Will Mann, he's actually the course manager for uh, Forte Labs, and they run two of the biggest cohort-based courses uh, in, in I think, the world with, with over you know 1,500 students attending these cohort-based courses. And the reason they love it is because we're just social creatures. We don't want to just learn. We want to learn with a community of peers, which are at the same stage as us, very much like college. And a lot of these cohort-based courses, I've you know I've gone through a few myself. It's it's the community that really drives that accountability and gets you to completion. Whereas when you're kind of just learning in kind of the single-player mode, whether that's you know through reading books or taking self-paced courses, you just don't see the same amount of outcomes. Yeah, on on average, that's true. Um, but I this is where I think jobs to be done is really important because it helps you segment the world a little bit and. Uh, and, and so on average, I think that's right. But there are plenty of instances where you're trying to learn something where socialization actually is the worst thing in the world. Uh, and so I, I just I think it's important to have a little bit more nuance than sometimes we bring to these conversations. By and large, and it's certainly true at Guild as well, we find that when we put cohorts together of learners and our employers, uh, students on average do better. But if you're looking to help me extend myself, uh, which is one of the uh, jobs that we found, um, we, we, we found actually that in, in those cases, you're generally hiring the book, not the book club, just to use that analogy. And so I, I think it depends a little bit. It depends upon the makeup of the individual also in some of these contexts. And so I, I, I think the bigger point is that cohort-based online learning is a huge uh, 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 opportunity and leap forward in the last couple of years that's now technologically feasible. Uh, it's exciting. Uh, but it won't be the only way that individuals learn. And we're going to see a variety of pathways and, and that plurality uh, to match different contexts and, and the progress that an individual is trying to make. I think that's really what's so exciting here. Maybe one to end on and, and uh, appreciate all your thoughts on these topics so far. But I wanted to talk maybe briefly about the liberal arts. Obviously, there's this notion of you know, very sort of idyllic, but going to college and for your four years and, and studying the liberal arts. Um, there's a new proposal I've heard from uh, someone I work with, uh, David Perel, who has written about, who is actually getting ready to publish a piece on the future of the liberal arts. He views it like this. Even if you're studying something that is purely liberal arts, like philosophy, generally we say to people in society, okay, the time to study philosophy is between 22 and, and 30 uh, and then maybe you go into academia with that degree, but otherwise, for most people, that's kind of when it's that's when the window closes to study these high-minded uh, humanities, liberal arts uh, type of subjects. And his proposal is something to the effect of having vocational training, or really a lot, what sounds like this last-mile training, get the first job quickly, sort of build up a financial base of security, and then you can uh, have other institutions that exist to teach people liberal arts from age 30 up and have this lifelong learning uh, for the pure joy of learning. It's not tied to getting a job, you know, if you're studying uh, philosophy or literature or something like that. Do you guys think about this much in terms of those liberal arts types of subjects and what the future of learning looks like for them? Does that sound viable to you, that model? Or would you well, say two things? One is if you're uh, waiting, if you're waiting until you're 30, there's no way you're going <laughs> to progress to get those skills. The second is, I think a lot of those, those what we consider li traditional liberal arts subjects are just the easiest ones in which to develop 
or inculcate those sort of key critical thinking, problem solving, communication, executive function skills. Uh, but there are lots of there are other there are other ways to do them in applied uh, business and uh, tech and STEM um, uh, areas. Um, harder to do, harder to teach, harder to find people to teach them. But it can be done. Uh, they, it, 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 it is being done. Um, but again, not as not as fun to teach, and there are fewer people who want to do it. So um, you know, look, look for those programs. But I don't. You're, you're not going to see someone who's been working for three years, uh, you know, go back and um, gain those skills with a uh, you know sort of a, uh, history of the French Revolution course that's, that's not gonna that's not gonna happen um those things are you know you, you should know them to be a you know a, a, a good human being but you don't need to know that in order to progress in your career what you need to develop are those specific um capabilities uh and those can be done in a more applied way yeah i guess my thought uh is and will will you Your question brings to mind the uh, phrase "education is often wasted on the young." Uh, that, that was certainly true. That was certainly true with me. But uh, the, um, you know, I I I think you're going to see a mix. And so, just to Ryan's point briefly, the brilliance I think of what Minerva is doing in its in its cohorts is they have codified very explicitly the skills uh, that one gets in a liberal arts degree and and therefore they make them um, uh, they, they make sure that every graduate right that goes through the program attains those in a variety of different contexts that that have uh, Im immediate value on the other side for 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 less dollars um, and so I, I I think you'll see the spread of some of those insights not necessarily uh, Minerva itself, which is not necessarily built to scale, but uh, but I think you'll see other folks uh, take some of those learnings uh, and and put them in a variety of contexts. To to Ryan's point, the second thing I think is that, that you know there will be individuals that continue to have that uh, that experience up front, but I think more to the point, as we think about what it means to be an educated citizen. Uh, some of those things shouldn't just be foist upon higher education. We should do a better job in the K-12 system uh, as well. And then I guess the third thing is I, I, I would disagree, I guess, with Ryan in the sense that I do think you will see not people taking whole years off <laughs> to go study the French Revolution, but, but, you know, consuming courses here and there as part of their learning journey, if you will. Um, I, I, obviously, that's you know, I, I think that'll be a part of it, but I, I and I don't think we should overstate uh, that revolution uh, either as part of this. I, I, I just, I think we're gonna see, a, there's gonna be more ways to consume learning and, and uh, that is faster and cheaper in a variety of contexts. And that's, what's exciting. Through yeah, to to totally agree. And and as, as uh, these competency marketplaces develop where you're able to sort of assess your competencies, there'll be lots of different ways. And maybe French revolution courses are going to be a good way to develop those capabilities, but you'll, 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 you'll essentially have a, you'll, you'll have a, uh, a GPS for your own human, human capital development. Um, and some, so, so, so some pathways, some courses will, uh, you know, be a, a straighter line like the ones I was suggesting. And some may be, uh, less straight, but more, uh, more enjoyable. Um, like the ones Michael's talking about. 
One, one quick thing, sorry to interrupt. Uh, Ish had actually invited me up and I joined late, so I apologize, but and thank you, Ish, for, for just having on for a quick second. One point I want to add at the end, though, is um, that, uh, you know, I, I do think um, there actually could be a, a market out there and a lot of potential for, you know, adults basically in their quarter life and midlife crises, you know, wanting to go back and kind of do that exploration phase a second time, so to speak, and or, you know, reorient themselves in the liberal arts as they figure out who they want to be and, and become, you know, free in another way. Um, so it's actually possible, I think, that, that that could be another way, although I don't think that it's something that, as a liberal arts, you're going to just bump back until you're 30. Sure. And I can imagine it in that uh, really interesting to hear about in the applied context, sort of in the context of STEM or tech or business. Uh, and then certainly I think the post-30 would largely be uh, part-time. But uh, yeah, right. Uh, thanks for hopping up and, and sharing that, too. Appreciate it. Well, I've got to, unfortunately, I've got to jump. I'm not going to have a midlife crisis, but I will have a crisis with my family who are sitting down for dinner. So um, I enjoyed no this. This was yeah. a great conversation. It's always good to talk with, with you, Michael. Super fun. Yeah, thanks so much. I think we're just, just about to wrap there anyway. So um, Ryan, Michael, thank you guys for your time. Really insightful. Took a ton of notes. And uh, guys, we do this every week. We'll probably on Twitter spaces in the future, perhaps. But Ryan, Michael, thank you once again. And we are the Future of Education Club signing off. Yeah, thanks, everybody. If you want to keep up and get notified about future sessions, get just head over to futureofeducation.club. Uh, our speakers tonight, again, Ryan Craig, uh, partner at, at uh, Achieve Partners, and then Michael B. Horn, uh, who is the author of Choosing College, as well as a lot of other wonderful books. And, and yeah, it's Ish and Will signing off. Have a great night, guys. Thanks, guys.